Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. Well, we've been in the uh, series, The Pursuit of Godliness, and um, we've made some big decisions about our church today, and this morning, as you will look on your outline, we're going to talk about another decision. It's uh, critical in this pursuit of godliness, and it's the decision to be godly. So you might grab your outlines, and as you do, let me tell you a story that happened to me some years ago. It was 1985. And I had the opportunity of interacting with some social researchers who were connected with Stanford University. And we were discussing the changes that they were detecting that were going on in American society at the time that would impact American society in the future, particularly the 90s. And what those changes would do and how Americans would think and act in that next decade. Part of their research I think you will find fascinating. They told me that one of the greatest challenges that they predicted then would affect Americans in the day in which we live, which is now, would be in the area of decision-making and just simply making decisions. One told me that he thought one of the greatest services that the church could offer its people would be in helping them develop decision-making skills, just simply how to decide. Now, why did they feel that would be an issue in the 90s? Well, the research that they were looking at in the 80s indicated that America was becoming a vast, multiple-choice society, that more and more of American life, even in the rural areas of America, were becoming cosmopolitan, much of that due to the technology that we now possess. More and more people were moving into urban centers where diverse people with diverse lifestyles, with diverse thinking, was being mixed together into a melting pot of ideas. Technology such as computers and satellite dishes and faxes and all that goes with the internet system that we're hearing about on the information highway and cable TV. It was dumping bucket loads of new ideas and new lifestyles and new thoughts and new ways of thinking and new religions on people that was going to require from them new choices. Some of you remember Quite frankly, it was not so long ago either when our choices were lean and limited. I can remember growing up where when you went down to the corner drugstore for some ice cream, you had two choices, chocolate or vanilla. I remember when it was Friday night and you wanted to go to the movie, you went to one theater and your choice was either to see it or to not see it. That's it. When the circus came to town, everybody got excited and went because it would be months before the next event would come to town. So there was no choice. You just went to have some excitement. Moral choices were very clear and simple. There was a clearly defined right and a clearly defined wrong, and nobody really thought to even debate much of those issues from a moral standpoint. Now we find ourselves overwhelmed with options and choices of every kind. I get confused enough just going to Baskin Robbins where there's 39 flavors now, but that's not even enough for them. Now they've got to add all the toppings and the trimmings and there's the flavor of the day and the flavor of the week and the flavor of the month, the flavor of the year, and on and on it goes. And it's hard to decide just what I want to have for some dessert. 
If you want TV, then coming soon will be your access to 500 channels worldwide. You'll get to watch the news in Saudi Arabia if you want to. But that's going to be in every home by the end of this decade. And all one has to do today is pick up their local newspaper and you will find the next alternative lifestyle being presented to you for your choice of living. It's in light of all these options, all these choices and all these opportunities that my researcher friend said to me this, Robert, you must teach people how to decide how to live. And then he said this, and I want you to hear this. He said, otherwise, like a kid in a candy store, most people in the 90s are going to waste their lives exercising and experimenting with all these endless options rather than deciding what is a purposeful lifestyle. You see, options, the right to have options, has become the opiate of the American people. Isn't it interesting that in the mid-90s, we find ourselves wanting to keep all our options open and committed to nothing. So funny that in our day and age, we become committed to everything and nothing at the same time. We believe in everything and nothing at the same time. Webster's defines the word decision as this, the act of making up one's mind. When you decide, all of life narrows. It gets narrower. A decision by its very nature whacks away at options and opportunities. It eliminates the other as it pursues the one. That's what decision making is all about. When it comes to ice cream, your decision does not have to be permanent. I mean, you can choose and then go back and choose a different flavor. But when it comes to spiritual matters, the act of making up one's mind is essential to productivity and fruitfulness and satisfaction in the spiritual realm. The, the first commandment is not about the God of the month. The first commandment is not about options. The first commandment says you shall have no other gods besides me. Choose. Period. In other words, spiritual life is about decisions, permanent, lifelong decisions. And so this morning, I think we're going to probe a little bit the soul. It's not going to be an easy message because we're going to get down where we live in our secret recesses and probe the soul and talk about what it means to make the decision to be godly. The decision, if we use our definition, the decision to passionately identify with Jesus Christ in order to be pleasing to God. Now, if you look on your outlines, you'll notice I've given you what I think are the three basic components uh, to a decision. A decision has a no component. That's the context for a decision. It has a yes component, which I believe is your belief, your choice, what you believe is going to make you different. And then it has a what it's going to take component, which are those things that I bring to that decision or I'm compelled to bring to that decision in order to make it reality. Now, that happens in all kinds of decisions anyway. If you go out and you're driving around in your car and now you've spent $1,000 on a transmission, now you've had your alternator fixed, it leaks oil, it bucks and jumps and it doesn't work right and the tires are coming off, there comes a place where you come to that no component. <laughs> you say, I've had enough of this. 
And you look at your car and go, enough, no, I, don't, I want something different. And then you go out and look at all the varieties and flavors and colors of new automobiles you can choose until your heart delights in one. That's the yes component. And then you have to figure out how you're going to pay for it, right? That's the what it's going to take component that you bring to the table. It's the same in the spiritual realm. You have a no, you have a yes, you have a what it's going to take in order to decide. And I want to decipher each one of those components in the few moments that we have today. Let's look first of all at the no component. No is essential to all good decisions. When you look at the Statue of Liberty, you see a yes about American life. At least that's how immigrants thought of it. It was a powerful symbol of a new way of life, the yes. But I want you to know before European immigrants ever made that treacherous journey across the Atlantic, before they ever sailed with anticipation into New York Harbor, before they stepped out onto Ellis Island and marveled at this Statue of Liberty that was going to give them this new way of life, they first had to come to a very powerful no in their life. You see, there was a whole other life they rejected. For the Irish, there came a place where they said no to the empty and fertile fields of Ireland and the famine that raged there. For the Englishmen, it was no to the sweatshops of the British Empire and the deplorable working conditions that so many worked under there. In most of Europe, it was a no to the hopelessly rigid class structure that left people hopeless in their vision of what they could be or become. For others, it was no to the religious persecution. But let me tell you, it was a powerful no. A no to family, a no to heritage, a no to ethnicity, a no to culture, a no to my nation. I had to say no to all that before I got on the boat and sailed towards my yes. That's why Emily Dickinson once said, renunciation is the piercing virtue of life. Everyone has to say at some point, as Christians, no to my old way of life if I'm going to pursue godliness. Eugene Peterson writes, and I'm quoting, a person has to be thoroughly disgusted with the way things are in their life if they are to find the motivation to set out seriously on the Christian way. Did you hear that? That's why at times a good dunking in my own depravity becomes helpful, even necessary, before I make a decision to follow Jesus Christ. It allows me to get fed up with myself. It allows me to realize that my true self is not my, the, my imagined self that I've been trying to construct all these years. My true self has holes in it. There's ugliness in it. There's selfishness in it. I'm absolutely hopeless without Jesus Christ. And that piercing reality leads to a piercing renunciation of the old life. And if you haven't got there, it's going to be very difficult, difficult for you to pursue godliness, if you still think there's something there that can make it all worthwhile. Everyone must come to a place experientially where they realize they cannot work harder to get better. That to continue to live in the delusion that somehow I can use all my cunning and all my intellect and all my money and wrap it all together and come out with a satisfying lifestyle that's going to fulfill me both now and in eternity, as long as you're there, you haven't stepped on the road to godliness. It's beyond your reach. 
Are you aware that the Gospels begin with a no before they issue a yes? The no was issued by the ministry of John the Baptist. The yes was issued by Jesus Christ. It was John the Baptist's ministry to make a people prepared for the Lord. But he made them prepared by the piercing virtue of renunciation. He came and preached repentance. He came and called these people to take a hard, realistic look at themselves, to see their disgustingly hypocritical lifestyle and their spiritual emptiness, even though they went to temple Sabbath after Sabbath, and they paid their tithes and their dues and their offerings and their taxes, and they obeyed the Romans. He said, your life is empty. Look at it. Look hard at it. And they did. And there came a place where there was a revolution in Israel. People coming out, vocally confessing their sins to one another. This stinks, that's what they were saying. This life stinks, it's not working. The system isn't working. And John said, let me baptize you in that. And he did. That's the no that every person must come to. And they came out to John in droves. The point is this, you can never have something better until you are absolutely, absolutely convinced that what you have is not. It's not better. It's not going to get better. The point is, all good spiritual decisions start with a no component. A no to self, a no to this world, a no to life as it is, a no to being like everyone else, a no to my own hypocrisy, a no to self-righteousness. You can never move over into the house of godliness until, until you are first fed up with where you live now. The no fuels the yes. And that brings me to the yes component. And I'd like you to look at Hebrews chapter 11 because it probably tells us more succinctly than any other letter what this yes component is all about. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, Verse 6 says, as this writer is encouraging these Hebrews to grow up in their faith, he says, and without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must first believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Now I want you to know, when you look at verse 6, I'm going to tell you that that's the yes component. In fact, there are three yeses in verse 6. You might not see them, uh, but I'm going to point them out to you. The first yes in verse 6 is a yes, God is. It's a yes to the reality of God. He who comes to God must believe that He is. Do you remember the moment when you came to the place where you were gripped by the fact that God is really here? That God is not something that people just talk about or make believe because they need something to believe in? but that somehow and in some way you've experienced Him, somehow that, that, that understanding came flooding into your soul that He is, He's here, and He's here for me. I don't think there's any more delicious moment in all of life than to discover that God is. But I want you to know as I talk to people, many people who've grown up in the church, many people who consider themselves religious in one form or another, that there are many people who try to move forward in the Christian life without fully resolving 
this first yes. In their minds still, they are intellectually debating whether God is. And whether God is the God of the Bible. And whether Jesus Christ was even really real. Whether somehow there was a, a character that has been layered with mythology and that's who we're believing in, but it's, it's really not all true. I found people like that in the church. And they come to church regularly. Sunday after Sunday, they come for its insight or its inspiration, but they can never quite come to God because they're not sure if He is. And the leap of faith seems, well, it seems too great or too painful. I want to challenge you this morning. If you're in that place, don't be embarrassed by it, by that doubt. Uh, don't worry that those are issues that Jesus Christ would readily enjoin you to discuss or others. You don't need to be afraid of that kind of doubt. But let me tell you what you shouldn't do. Don't settle into that doubt and mix it with religion. That's the worst of all places. If you're at that place where one foot's in heaven and one foot's on earth, it's good to push yourself a little. It's good to talk to others about it. It's good to debate the issue and discuss it and to read and to think and to contemplate. And after a time, you know what it's good to do? It's good to decide. It's good to decide one way or the other. But there's no reason to hang around. To be godly starts with that kind of push. There has to be a no to the old life and I've got to contemplate. And there's some of you probably at the very beginning of the spirit, your spiritual pilgrimage and you're here and you're just, you don't want the old life, but you're not sure about this. That's good. Think about it. Talk about it. Ask questions. But put yourself on the road to decide. And if it's not here, then put yourself on a road somewhere else. Because godliness can never be obtained as long as the question of God is, is still dangling in front of you and you haven't answered it. Then there's a second yes in this passage. It's yes to God is worthy. If you'll notice in verse 6 it says, and without faith it's impossible to please God. Now I have to ask the question, why on earth would we seek to please God or even desire to be like God unless we have come to a place in our decision-making process where our affections have fallen on Him and we've come to a place where we say, you know, He's worthy. He's worth my life. This is the best lifestyle going. I've, I've, I've really come to that conclusion. That's why as you read through the epistles, all the way through the epistles, the call of the apostles is to take a long gaze at Jesus Christ. Look at Him. Because as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.6, Jesus, if you look into the face of Jesus, He says you find the knowledge of the glory of God. John says it this way in his Gospel. He said, And the Word became flesh, and we beheld His glory. The word beheld there means we stared at Him a long time. Kind of like a, a boy looking at a pretty girl. We looked up and down. We checked everything out about Him. And you know what we found as we beheld His glory? We found that He was full of grace and truth. And it was worthy of our life. There was no other that matched up to it. Everyone I want you to know in this auditorium has stored away somewhere in the secret recesses of your heart, your soul. You have the ultimate object of your desire. 
For some of you, it may be a person. For some of you, it may be a career or fame. For some of you, it may be to have people just simply recognize my significance. I'm going to create some things to help them do that and honor me and admire me. Now, we won't say that because we'll put a lot of layers of acceptability on that, but at the cornerstone of our heart, I want to be admired and I drive myself for that kind of response from those around me. For others, it may be possessions or pleasures. And I want you to know these kind of things in every age are on humanity's top ten list to live for. But over time in every age, these things ultimately fail. They rust. They develop clay feet. And we find at the end that they were not worthy of our ultimate desire. The writers of the Bible hold out Jesus Christ and they say, take a long, hard look. Because what we want to promise you on the front end, the more you get to know this Jesus, the more His stature will grow, not fade the more His value will appreciate, not depreciate. You will see the beauty of His life. You will see the flawlessness of His character, the magnificence of His lifestyle that never failed even to the end. You will see the wonders of His priority. And in looking long into the face of Christ, you will say, yes, this is the life I want. There has to be a yes that God is. There has to be a yes that God is worthy. And thirdly, there has to be a yes that He can bring about godliness in your life if you seek Him. That's why the end of the verse says, and He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. As I seek to get away from my old corrupt life that I'm disgusted with, as I say no to it and come to God and say, yes, I believe God is, and yes, Jesus Christ has a life worthy of me passionately identifying with Him, at that point, I must embrace in faith this third important Yes, which says, yes, I believe the new life I seek in Christ is possible. Because He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. Craig last week quoted 2 Peter 1.3, which says, by His divine power, He has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. He's made it all possible. It doesn't matter what background you come out of, what hurtful past, what problems... Jesus Christ has made possible for you to become like Him. But you have to say, yes, I can do that. And you have to seek Him. And then He'll reward you. That's what this verse says. Yes, I believe if I seek to be godly, I can be godly. Because the God who is there is a rewarder of those who seek to be like Him. Those are the three yeses of Hebrews 11.6. So the decision to be godly contains a no component, a yes component. Now let's look at the third component. What is it going to take from me? See, God's going to do His part, but I've got a part. If I settle on Him and His life, the pursuit of godliness as my ultimate object of desire, and He will reward me if I seek Him, what do I have to do in order to seek Him? To answer that question, I'm going to have you turn back to 2 Peter chapter 1. Because in 2 Peter 1, we looked at what those ingredients were last week as Craig enumerated them for us. And I think of them kind of like a ladder. He starts out in verse 5 saying that in your faith, you need to apply diligence. You've got to seek, in other words. And we already have seen what that faith is. It's, yes, God is. Uh, yes, uh, God will reward me. You know, yes, I can be like Him. Th those kind of things. That's faith. 
Okay, but he says now you need to climb this ladder to get to be godly. And in verses 5 through 7, he tells you the four rungs of the ladder. They are moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, and perseverance. And as you climb each one of those rungs, and they each have their own challenges, as you climb that ladder, the next rung up is going to be godliness. And there's no godly person who doesn't have these four ingredients practically displayed in their life. And that's what I want to talk about. Craig identified them last week and to find them, I want to probe them a little deep, more deeply with applications. So first, he says in verse 5, Now for this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. The first rung. By moral excellence, I think Peter means practically that I must consciously set a Christ-like standard of morality for my life. Not a church standard, not a crowd standard, not a worldly standard, I must set a Christ-like standard of morality in very specific terms if I'm going to be godly. That's my part. Now, I've got to ask Christ to help me meet those standards, but I've got to consciously set those standards. Otherwise, I'll be drifting. I want you to know godly people do not have a multiple-choice morality that's made in the heat of the moment. Godly people have a very well-researched, preset standard of morality on such vital issues as marriage and money and work and church and pleasure. They're not vague. They're not drifting. They're clear and articulate. And they know their standards are high. And they know at times holding those standards in a crowd will make them feel like the movie character Forrest Gump. Kind of odd, out of step. But the reason they continue to move forward is because they believe, back in Hebrews 11.6, that there is reward in that kind of moral excellence. And so they keep after it. Now, there are two errors that I see in the modern church concerning this first rung of moral excellence. The first error is when Christians refuse to preset, and I want to keep using that term, preset any moral standards for them or their family. Perhaps you could say what they live by is a spontaneous morality of the moment. Which often, by the way, gets them in trouble. And in time it shows in how they keep their commitments and commitments they break and how they view worship and how regularly they worship. Their standards that keep changing from group to group. How they spend their money and what they give away. In the pleasures they allow themselves the privilege to indulge in, in the age in which they live. Did you know Peter warns his readers at the very end of this letter, 2 Peter, to avoid those kind of people? Look at the end of the letter, just turn the page, if you're in 2 Peter, and look at verse 17 as he concludes this letter, really on godliness, and as he concludes it, he says to his readers, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. Now look at that verse. You know what the word unprincipled means? It means to be lawless. It means to be a person without a standard. A person who has never chosen a moral standard. So you just live by whims and spontaneities and crowds and pressures and image. That's what you live by. But you don't live by standards. 
You don't make your choices on principle. You make them by expediency. He says you need to avoid those people because you get in that kind of crowd, you'll be carried away with them. There's a second error though. Really the second error I think is even more insidious than the first. You remember in the depravity message that I gave some weeks back, I quoted Jeremiah 17.9. It said, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Boy, that's a good question. Who can? And you know how that plays out when it comes to moral excellence? It plays out this way. That there are people, myself included, who carry these deceitful hearts that will allow them, through conscious denial or dishonesty, we consciously do this, and then it goes unconscious. It allows me to see myself as right before God while I do the very things that God says is wrong. And yet I feel okay. My heart can do that for me. It can allow me to take the things that are unacceptable and indulge myself in them, and yet work it out in some grand personal scheme where somebody said, how are you doing with Christ? I say, man, we're doing great. Perfect fellowship. Feel real close to Him. Did you know there's a whole book in the Bible given over to exposing this kind of conscious, sinful denial and dishonesty? It's the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. I'll have you turn back and I want you to see how this is played out. If you're in your New Testament, go back to Matthew and then the very next book back is the prophet Malachi. In this book, the prophet stands between the people and God. He's kind of the conduit. And he talks about how God is thinking, and he talks about what the people are thinking. And you see this dialogue going on all through the book. But the theme of the book is, you need to stop consciously denying your sin and thinking you're right with God. You can do that. You know, the first people he picks on are the pastors. The priest. Look at verse 6 of chapter 1. He says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? This is God speaking. And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest. Despise my name. Now he says that, and then Malachi kind of plays the role of the priest, who are living in denial. And what do they say? Wait a minute. They say, how have we despised thy name? See, we're not even conscious we're doing that. We're not even aware of that. We've somehow submerged that deceitfulness, that transgression, where we've, we've created this fictitious spirituality where we don't even know what you're talking about, God. Look at verse 7. He says, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar. He's saying, here's what you're, here's what you're doing. You're bringing in the worst when you should bring in the best to sacrifice before me. But you're keeping the best and sacrificing the worst. That's what you're doing. But notice what they say. But you say, how have we defiled you? Even after he says it. See, they're in absolute denial. Turn over, because now he speaks to the people in chapter 2. Look at verse 13. He says, and there is another thing that you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weepings, and with groanings because He no longer regards the offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand. In other words, these people were coming in and maybe it was over personal issues or business issues or money issues or kid issues and they were 
They were off, making offerings to God and asking Him to bless them and to help them, and silence. Heaven was silent. And they were wondering why God doesn't regard their offerings and their worship. And He says, here's why. For what reason? And He says, because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. See, I've watched your marriages. And I've watched you men deal deceitfully and treacherously with your wife and abuse her and cheat on her. And then you come in and say, oh God, please give me this business deal. And he doesn't listen. That's why. That's why he doesn't listen. That's why he will not regard your offering. Can't you see it? But they can't. They're in denial. Look over in chapter 3, verse 8. The Lord says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? That doesn't make sense to us. And God says, you've robbed me in tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that it may, there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Why don't you test me? instead of hoarding your money. But you think I've got to keep all I can keep. And then you go to God and drop a pittance offering and think I've really done my spiritual service of worship. And God says, no, you haven't. You've robbed me. And now you wonder why your credit cards are full and wonder why your business deal fell and wonder why you don't have enough to buy the house you want. It's because I've cursed you. Because you think you can rob me. You can't. I want you to know this whole book is filled with that kind of denial. And God is trying to shake them out of that denial and bring them to a place where they will see what they're doing and say, you know, I just need to come to God on His standards. And He says, test me and see if I won't bless you. You know, I, sometimes I wonder when people struggle with the standards for marriage that the Bible presents, the standards for sex, the standards for divorce, the standards for giving and money, and those kind of things. And we're always saying, well, I don't know if he means that, or that seems a little hard there. And we're always on the defensive. We can never relax. And you know why? Because we don't believe it. You see, there comes a place where you finally look in the Bible and say, you know, God wants me to give this much money. Even though it hurts, but I'm going to test Him. He says He'll pour out blessing on me. I'm going to live my marriage this way. He says He's going to bless it. Or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold the line and I'm going to be pure even if people think I'm weird. He's going to bless me. There finally comes a place where you set a Christ-like standard of morality and you don't back off for any reason. The minute you grab onto that rung, you know what you've grabbed onto? The first step to godliness. But you have to grab onto the first rung. Or the second one will be futile. The second one, by the way, is knowledge, which means practically I must be forever expanding my comprehension and understanding of the Christ-like life if I want to grow in it. You can't grow in the Christ-like life if you don't know the rule book. And the rule book is the Bible. Remember when Rich called Harvard University and asked them if they still used the old entrance requirements that a student getting into Harvard had to read the Bible twice a day? And the gal in the end laughed, said, oh man, we don't do that anymore. You know, there was a reason they did that back then. And it wasn't to be legalistic. 
They did that because people in that day, when Harvard was originally created to train preachers to preach, they realized that these men had to be godly if their words had anything really to say. And if they were going to be godly, they had to know the Bible. They had to expand their comprehension of the spiritual world without which they would be impotent. Did you know if you're not regularly in the Bible, you're becoming impotent spiritually? There's no other way. And it's not just reading it to get information. It's reading it to meet God. God, what would you have me to do? Help me see your world here. You know, there are other books sometimes that help us. And I brought four that I think are helpful uh, to, to kind of expand your mind. I wanted to mention a few of them to you. One is the book Honest to God by Bill Hybels. That's a good starter book, especially for men. But it just helps you see a guy who's trying to become an authentic Christian and his struggle there. Another, which I think is an excellent book taken from the Psalms, the Psalm, uh, Psalms of Ascent, as a pilgrim would go up to worship, is the one by Eugene Peterson. I really enjoyed this one. A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. A third book would be the one that won an award. It's one of the outstanding books of the year a few years back, Desiring God by John Piper. And then a new book by J.I. Packer, which I think is far more practical than Knowing God, but it's a very helpful book, Rediscovering Holiness. You know, I like these guys because they're mind expanders. They help broaden my understanding of the God that I'm trying to pursue and gives me at points some really helpful, significant boost into seeing Jesus Christ as He really is. The third rung on the ladder is self-control. This is one of the most difficult rungs. Self-control means practically that I must take responsibility for conquering those things in me which inhibit the practice of the Christ-like life. See, I've made the decision, let's say, to follow Jesus Christ, to passionately identify, but now this brings me coldly to face myself and to master myself with self-control. Listen to this insightful statement by J.I. Packer on the day in which we live. I take this from his book on holiness. He says, It has been truly said that the greatest social problem of the modern world is the extreme emotional immaturity that now masquerades across our planet as an adult lifestyle. Today's world is full of people in adult bodies housing a juvenile, even infantile emotional makeup. People who always want to be little boys and little girls and just have fun. Affluence allows childish self-indulgence to become a lifestyle from one's teens onward and the results in later life are painful. I talked with a counselor recently who described her client as a 47-year-old success story walking around and overdosing on his 13-year-old emotional makeup. And she says, he's a tragedy. Psychologists call this the Peter Pan syndrome. And I know Craig mentioned this last week, but I want you to know, have you actually read the play Peter Pan by J.M. Barrie? The subtitle gives the whole plot away. The subtitle is, The Boy Who Never Grew Up. And it's meant to be a tragedy, not the celebrated comedy that it is on so many of our movie screens. Peter Pan is in reality an anti-hero to the play. 
Though brave and leader-like, Peter is portrayed by Barry as a conceited show-off, self-absorbed, heartless, and unable either to love or to accept love. The play makes it clear that Wendy and her brothers, when coming back from Never Never Land, are better off in doing so, because back from Never Never Land is where adulthood is a child's normal, healthy destination. But Peter turns back at that point saying, I just want always to be a little boy and have fun. And the audience is meant to see this statement for what it is. A small scale tragedy. You know, we have a plague in our world today. And the plague is a lot of men and women who are really boys and girls because they never ever have decided to seize control of their life and their emotions and their past and say, it's not going to rule me. I'm going to rule it. And with Christ's help, I'm going to rule it in a way that allows me to practice the Christ-like lifestyle. Now Paul would add to that that self-control is impossible without a vision of what you're trying to control yourself for. And that's where Jesus Christ once again gets lifted up. He's the goal. And when emotion and passion flow towards Him, then it's much easier to be self-controlled in light of the journey and the goal. If you take that away, then there's emptiness and the gnawing question, why control myself? So essential to self-control, practically speaking, is a clear vision and decision that I want to be godly. I'll enjoy it when I get there. And that brings us to the last rung, which is perseverance here. Because you notice in our text, after perseverance, we come to the platform of godliness. What is perseverance? Practically, it means I must fight to the end for the Christ-like life, trusting along the way that God will surprise me. See, one of the things about perseverance is you never know when you're going to be surprised. You never know when there's going to be relief. You just hang on. Believe in it. Somehow God's going to rescue you. Some of you maybe have felt that when you've dieted. You know, you said, I'm going to lose weight. So you, uh, you say, well, I'm going to start eating just carbohydrates and work out every day this week. So you do that. And at the end of the week, you come and you jump on the scales. And lo and behold, you weigh more now than you did at the beginning of the week. What do you do when you find that you weigh more? You know what you do? If you're smart, you'll persevere and wait to be surprised. That's what you'll do. That's what disciplined people do. Because by faith, they know somewhere out there it's going to work. The same in your relationship with God. If you saw the movie Gettysburg, and I got to see it several times on my TV during the holidays, there is one very powerful moment that involved Colonel Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, who was head of the main regiment. Chamberlain was asked by his commanding officer to hold Little Round Top, knowing that if Little Round Top was lost, the rebels would outflank the Union armies and destroy it. And I never will forget the commanding officer telling Colonel Chamberlain, hold Little Round Top at all cost. Do you understand? At all cost. Now, Chamberlain was an academic from Maine, and he had never been in a lot of battles and all of this was now going to be put to the test. 
And so soon the Confederates, knowing that they could gain the advantage, began to storm Little Round Top. Wave after wave assaulted Little Round Top. And each time Chamberlain's troops turned them back. But there comes a moment, a dramatic moment, and you can see it in his eyes, where Chamberlain looks around and his troops are utterly exhausted. Most of them are dead. They're absolutely depleted of any resources, and then it's announced to him that we have no ammunition. And then they watch helplessly as the Confederates regroup, fully armed, and storm Little Round Top one more time. The troops at the top, you could look in their eyes, thought of only two options, surrender or retreat. But Chamberlain, standing there, balancing all of this and what it meant to his nation, to his country, to the cause, you could see his mind turning. And with the words of his commanding officer ringing in his ears, whole little round top at all cost. He turns to these exhausted troops, and I never forget, it gives me chills even saying it. He said, fix bayonets and charge. They couldn't believe it. They didn't have any ammunition. Fix bayonets and charge? But they did so. Down the hill they came, yelling and screaming with their bayonets and no bullets. And to their surprise, these rebel troops fresh and fully armed, were so stunned at the aggressiveness of these Union troops that they dropped their guns and surrendered in mass to people who didn't even have bullets. And I never will forget seeing Chamberlain's eyes as he stood there with the smoke and the battle all around him, and you could just see he was absolutely stunned because he was fully expecting to be dead, but he got the surprise of his life because he became a national hero. You know, spiritual life often operates the same way. You're asked to persevere. Hold your life at all cost to God. And then the battle comes, wave after wave, and you find yourself fighting for your purity, for justice, for your marriage, for your kids, at the workplace, and you're worn out, and you're out of bullets. And the Spirit of God says, fix bayonets and charge. And you do. And some of you have. And along the way down Little Round Top, the circumstances mysteriously change with every step. But the person who changes is you. You become godly. That's the surprise at the bottom of Little Round Top. You changed. But you have to grab onto the rung of perseverance at all costs. The decision to be godly is a decision with three components. A no component, I don't want this life any longer. A yes component, I want to be like Jesus Christ, and I know I can if I seek Him. And I'll do my part component that sets a Christ-like standard of morality, that expands my understanding of spiritual life, that takes responsibility for my life and holds on till the end waiting for surprises all along the way. You want that challenge? Do you want to be godly? That's the decision this morning. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. 
If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.